Hello and welcome to Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss mostly recent, mostly English language and mostly modern music-focused musicology. Um, so before we get started on this first episode, we just wanted to introduce ourselves. My name is Liam Cagney. I'm visiting lecturer in the School of Music at University College Dublin. My research interests include spectral music, late 20th century and contemporary Western art music, uh, techno and music in Ireland. Um, my name is Stephen Graham. I'm a lecturer in music at Goldsmiths, where I focus on modern music in all its forms, from popular music to contemporary composition and everything between and beyond those two big categories. What we are going to do every episode in this podcast is fairly simple. We each pick an article to discuss. Hopefully our thoughts on the articles will diverge from time to time and we can have some lively discussions. Then we'll close each show with a, a roundup section, which is going to be called... Research in the Round. Research in the Round, which is where we round up some recent issues of musicological journals, mention any recent books uh, and so on that have been published. Before we get into our articles for this episode, we wanted to put in a couple of disclaimers. So this is very much a podcast with a perspective and a set of interests. We're not trying to be comprehensive or representative. We're very much coming from a point of view. And that point of view is probably best characterized as focusing on modern music and theoretical work in a broad sense. Would that be fair? Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, so a lot of the articles we look at, whilst we will look, and in fact we're looking at one today, which is broadly empirical, a lot of the stuff we look at will be, as I said, theoretical. So it will be about cultural theory in some way or another, or it may be about music theory. And a lot of it will be focused on modern music. So whether that's modern uh, classical contemporary music or modern popular music or anything else. Let's move on to the main part of our show. Okay, so we're going to discuss two articles in turn. The first one I'll let you introduce, Stephen. So the first article we're going to discuss is one I picked. This is by Georgina Bourne and Kyle Devine. Its title is Music Technology, Gender and Class, Digitization, Educational and Social Change in Britain. And this was published in one of the most recent issues of 20th Century Music. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this article is because in the first instance, it is connected to a very broad and kind of a significant research project, MUSDIG, or Music Digitization Mediation, which has been a five-year project involving Georgina Bourne as the primary investigator alongside other researchers such as Jeff Baker, Kyle Devine, Christopher Hayworth, and, and some others. And this project is funded by the um, European Research Council, and it's a very, very broad-based project which looks at all sorts of things in the changing field of music. Its own little blurb is Music Digitization Mediation Towards Interdisciplinary Music Studies, and it's a five-year research program engaged in mapping and analyzing the far-reaching changes to music and musical practices afforded by digitization and digital media. So this project mixes uh, all sorts of research processes from ethnographic to quantitative research and it's had a variety of outputs including one of the, the article we're going to talk about today uh, and some publications from Jeff Baker and other people involved with the project. Um, I was involved with the conference before Christmas in Cambridge which was called Theorising the Avant-Garde and this drew together lots of different disciplines from art history to musicology to 
history of dance and, and so on, and tried to think about and workshop ideas of the avant-garde in the 21st century. So it's, a, it's an interesting research project, very broad, very um, transformative in terms of what it wants musicology to look like. So the article we're going to look at, as I said, focuses on the issue of gender, class, ethnicity in music technology and traditional music degrees in British universities. It's a mainly kind of uh, quantitative based, on the one hand, article. It uses data drawn from UCAS and other measurement systems to discover the kind of distribution of uh, students in terms of class and gender and ethnicity on different music programs. And then it uses that data uh, and draws kind of broader social, sociological theories and conclusions from that data. And again, the data shows that music technology degrees are on the rise and within those music technology degrees, as compared to the demographics of a traditional music degree in various British universities, there is a higher proportion of men, higher proportion of people coming from a lower kind of social stratum, um, and a higher percentage of people who identify as white. So this sixth section expands on, on the data from all the previous sections and gives negative and positive interpretations, the negative um, are to do with the reproduction of class and cultural capital in these degree programs. The positive relates to issues of changing musical canons and the changing nature of the musical field in the 21st century and the emergence of various alternative or new canons to sit alongside or possibly displace the traditional uh, WAM canon. As I said, it, it has these central findings which relate to the rise of music technology degrees and the, the types of people that this research finds to be taking those degrees as compared to traditional music degrees and it draws a range of conclusions based on, on that data. Liam, what did you make of this article? Uh, there's no gain saying the absolute quality of the research and the, the range of different methods applied um, to the topic is really impressive. It's certainly very topical because changes are visible for anybody who's been working in or otherwise experiencing higher education and music in higher education in the UK and Ireland in the past 10 years or so. The changes have been quite obvious in, um, in the ways outlined. I wondered somewhat about, if I may use a loaded term, the agenda um, at times informing the discussion. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that later. Uh, to me, th there might be a slight tension between the pseudo-objective, pseudo-omniscient tone and the slightly, arguably, tendentious aims and tastes of the authors of the study. It's hinted at at times that what's claimed to be modernism and elitist uh, notated-based uh, compositional mode is hoary, hackneyed and out of key with the times. Um, that's arguable, but it's taken as given by the authors. And I wondered somewhat about the binarism underlying the, the article TM, which is an abbreviation for traditional musical degree, and MT, which is a music technology degree. Which this, this, I wish they'd had a, a more a, a better way of kind of delineating those two things, because every time the, those uh, the MT and the TM appeared, I had to my brain had to kind of say which one? What? Oh yeah. Me too. But after a while, I began to wonder whether, in fact, this is symptomatic of a binaristic, dualistic approach, which uh, one would have thought is uh, not perhaps the best way to go forward, that these binarisms can be deconstructed often. And while it's inarguably the case that there are 
degrees that are more uh, geared towards music technology than the humanities-based traditional musical education, I don't believe the distinction is as clear-cut as the authors would argue for. Um, this, what goes along with this binarism is a sort of positive-negative, utopian, dystopian um, vision whereby music technology is the emblem of all that's positive in the future and what we can achieve. And TM, on the other hand, is in the shadows, is this sort of out-of-date, cranky old uh, approach to teaching music. It's interesting that you that you bring up this, this binarism, because I think that's one of the issues that runs through this article, and that actually runs through some of Bourne's previous research. Um, it's probably a useful moment to mention Rationalising Culture, which is a famous slash infamous previous publication of Bourne's, which focuses on an ethnographic study of IRCAM um, and draws various conclusions from that ethnographic study, which have been contentious to say the least in the musicological field. I'm interested in this idea of TM versus MT, primarily because I think this is a case of the authors slightly having their cake and and eating it too, because throughout the article they, they build in these kind of disclaimers about, we know on the one hand this data is slightly out of date, since it's it relates to a period which is already fast receding into the background, so it's I think it's 2010 to 2012. Mm-hmm. So it's already pre, um, predating the introduction fees, it's already predating a lot of changes. This is a fast-changing kind of field and sector. Um, I, I know from my own experience that in the last year or two, we've been transforming our, our what would be called our TM. And in fact, my university is one of the one of the um, universities which are looked at in this data set. So it's my experience is absolutely relevant to the findings that they draw from this data. So that's 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 the first kind of issue with this is that this data is slightly um, old and slightly aged at this point. The second thing is that they acknowledge that, but then they they try and kind of they try and point out the flaws, but then in doing so they kind of seem as if they want to move beyond them and, and seem as if they kind of allow themselves to move beyond them. When I'm not sure that the fundamental conceit of the article, as you've been saying works because I don't know a world in which this MT and TM stuff can be kind of diced in this way where it's completely separate. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would just say for personal experience that I know for both of us this absolute division between classical notated music and popular and um, more marginal forms of popular music exists. We, I speak for myself but I, I like all of it. Yeah, which, which it's difficult though because I think I think Born and Divine, to give them their due, wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. And I think some of the some of the claims and conclusions in this article speak to that very idea. So when they move into this idea, when they move into the section where they talk about this is this is the section where they give kind of positive interpretations to the data and they say, well, maybe there's different canons that are emerging, and maybe at one point they have this phrase which is quite memorable, the music field is a multiverse. Mm-hmm. So maybe these new canons aren't necessarily replacing or displacing old ones, maybe they're gonna exist alongside and kind of as a kind of a constellation. So there's all these different canons and different kind of legitimacies which are existing around and alongside each other. Now, I'm not sure how much I'd buy that. And I think this brings us back to the issue that you raised about, I guess, about objectivity and agendas. Now, this this article frames itself as a lot of kind of anthropology or ethnography frames itself as somewhat objective, as giving a kind of a scientific set of data and then drawing some interpretations and conclusions from that. As far as that goes, that's that's fine, and it does a good job of kind of 
owning up to its its biases, I guess, to to a degree. But I did wonder about the the way it was pushing pushing things in a certain way. So there was only one part of this article where I felt that there was a a kind of a disapproving a disapproving stance being taken, and that was in the part where I don't know what you thought about this, but the part where they they draw they draw out wider and they start to talk about the history behind this. And by the way, I should say I I think I have a slightly less dim view of this this than you do possibly. Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah, I think there's there's issues and I think there's issues with some of the way some of the language that's used. Um, I think there's issues with some of the the binarisms. I absolutely I absolutely recognise that those that those structure and kind of are an important part of how this article does its does its work. But having said that, I do think it, it presents some interesting findings, and I think some of the conclusions that are drawn about, um, for example, the reproduction of gender, gender um, kind of hierarchies and so on, is reasonable. I'm um, not sure that, well, it's good that you brought up the gender point, because uh, just for argument's sake, um, I'm going to bring this up. I'm not sure that hierarchy is what I, the word I would use to... Uh, describe the fact that there are more men, for example, than women taking mm. these music technology courses. There's this, I, I would see it as a, a kind of equalizing vision where everybody has to be the same and this kind mm. of extreme relativism at times. Uh, underneath the article for me, whereby everything should be 50-50, so there should be an equal number of men and women, now, male and female students on these courses, but why shouldn't there be more men than women on a, on a particular course? Yeah, I mean, I that's a really kind of provocative and interesting thought, and I, I don't necessarily have a, a response other than to say that I guess this this keys into a long history of coding various practices and um, various kind of genres, I guess, in 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 gendered and classed and in race terms. And I guess you could say that there's negative consequences to, for example, the idea that certain instruments, certain ways of writing music have a certain amount of prowess attached to them, and then there's a kind of a hegemonic masculinity which gets linked up to that, and then it means that when you come to... Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of talking myself around to, to what you just said. Well, on the other hand, there's no doubt that women have been written out of many histories of music, and I can't think of the name of the author or the work offhand, but there is a history of electronic music written by a male author not too long ago where the, at some point the author says women had no part in the development mm. of electronic music, very boldly, which is a dubious claim. And uh, yeah... It, Research in the past uh, few years has shown more and more that women have played mm. an important role. Yeah, and there's all sorts of projects which try to act as a counterweight. So there's the Women Electronic Music Project, there's the Ladies in Noise compilation, which happens. Yeah. There's that Tumblr, which is just images of women in the studio, which is trying to counteract the, the kind of production of that space as as male in some way. So there's all that. I, I mean, I, what I would say is that I think it's important for us, well, from I think anyway, for us to recognise that we're probably not the best people to speak to that issue of, of whether this is a, um, a positive thing or, or a negative thing or something even to to be kind of problematized and worried about and thought about and um, simply because we are speaking from the position of um those who have been kind of advantaged by this history i mm-hmm. guess true um but but yeah I, I do take your point that there is sometimes this this stress or this kind of leaning into this idea that parody is some kind of panacea so parody is some kind of social resolution which we should aim for 
um, when I'm not sure that, I mean, equality of opportunity maybe is something important, but I'm not sure whether a 50-50 split on a music technology degree is something that is socially meaningful, really. Mm -hmm. So there is that. Yeah, there, there seems to be a stated uh, dislike for hier hierarchies and hierarchization uh, with the gender bias and um, class system and uh, ethnic differences on the makeup of these courses. On the other hand, Professor Barn, um, for example, in that book which you just showed me a minute ago, the author who's very um, angry, seemingly, this is Ken um, Watson, Adorno for Revolutionaries. Says that Professor Bourne prefaced her PowerPoint uh, presentation, which he attended, by giving a whole big long list of her publications in a very, well, what he saw as a very proud way. And she's the recipient of the Dent Medal. She's mm. a professor at Oxford University. These are all tokens of hierarchy. And she's signaling, signaling herself as being a preeminent in her field and at the very top. And at, the levels that others should aspire to. This is exactly the type of hierarchization, isn't it? Where in another domain, um, she may criticize and she may claim that we should get rid of it. Well, potentially. I mean, not wanting to kind of be too ad hominem or, or, or even... Yeah, that's what I didn't really yeah. want to say. No, I mean, but no, but it's a reasonable point because actually it's speaking to... The, the specific kind of fine-grained issues that suppose, she addresses in her research. Isn't yeah, it? it's inconsistencies that I'm kind of yeah nitpicking about. I'm, I'm wondering, though, is that an inconsistency? I mean, possibly, but I don't know that it is because, and I'm playing devil's advocate, I'm kind of trying to put myself in her position, but I imagine she would say that there's nothing necessarily wrong with hierarchy, but there's maybe something wrong with specific arrangements in society i don't know but i imagine that that might be a that's fair response yeah. something like that but yeah i mean those kinds of tensions are, are very much driven through work like this um can we, i just want to come back to something you were saying about the the thing about objectivity and, and agendas there was two moments in this article where i felt like the mask slipped a little bit um so the first one was in this passage where they try and give the historical context to the rise of music technology degrees and this is i felt this was a quite a a strong passage it's quite brief in the article but nevertheless i found it quite well well kind of reasoned and well argued and, and fairly informative and this is so in this section they talk about the rise of what have been called the creative industries um, so this is a kind of a rebranding of adorno's culture industry in a more slightly more positive or kind of entrepreneurial guise and this has obviously become very pervasive in, in culture and in society and it's, it's wrapped up in this, all these dynamics of brand britain and selling britain and using the kind of knowledge economy or the kind of creative economy so things like music and um, performing arts theater and so on and kind of branding these as kind of business endeavors and creating more market spaces and creating more market kind of dynamics where previously market dynamics maybe didn't exist or didn't kind of intervene to the same degree so this is a, this is obviously a for my for my money uh, a, a negative thing yeah and um, because it's again it's about the kind of broader neoliberalization of of society and of of the world essentially now there's lots of books which have been published on this i happen to be reading one at the moment which is great for context david harvey's a brief history of neoliberalism and he talks about this kind of broad-based kind of movement in in culture around the world to towards the kind of marketization and kind of structural adjustments of various economic systems along these kinds of lines and the creative industries in britain are an excellent example of a place where this kind of dynamic and evolution and transformation of culture and of the kind of meaning and practice of culture takes place. 
So they talk about this in the article, and actually I felt like the the place that they ended up in was one broadly sympathetic to the things I was just saying. They were actually condemning this. They were condemning the kind of instrumentalization of technology, for example, at one point. They were condemning the kind of technophilia and the way in which these degrees might be seen as a kind of a a sop for a kind of a music industry focused very much on selling consumer electronics and how this kind of plays into that. And they also talked talked about the link between these degrees maybe being a solution for governments who's who are not managing the economy in a very efficient way there's rising unemployment because of their kind of gutting of of various kind of manufacturing industries and so on and these degrees serve a purpose possibly of actually kind of taking on a a big labor a big part of the labor force and giving them essentially employment by proxy so that that whole part i found quite convincing and and, and i felt that was where the math slipped a little bit for 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 the good Mm-hmm. And just very briefly, um, the second part I felt where it slipped was where they reference much later on when they're talking about these positive interpretations of this data and they talk about the emergence of these new canons and the changing musical field. And this this relates to something you were saying. They reference, and this calls up, if anyone's read Rationalizing Culture, you will immediately be placed back into that, that world because they talk about, on the one hand, ex- what they call experimental music, sound art, improv, and all these other supposedly non-mainstream or non-hegemonic art musics or quasi-art musics and then they place them against essentially uh i think they they use the term serial post-serial and post-spectral spectral spectral yeah so they use this collection of terms to to basically just push all this complex musical developments and, and composers into these into these camps which are very stark and which are very value value kind of loaded up with value so i found that's where the math slipped for a slightly less um helpful Mm-hmm. framing a situation which is very complex and which they just pushed into these experimental versus avant-garde kind of tropes which are just so tired and so unconvincing. Yeah, and I think there's some very interesting research going on at the moment in the past decade or two on the history of the post-war uh, European avant-garde for want of a better term. And if uh, Borna Devine had, had engaged with this research more, I think it would definitely strengthen and the validity of their arguments. I agree that this is probably one of the most contentious passages in their article, but I guess my reaction as I've been uh, giving it here is informed by my defensiveness about the type of music which I've spent a lot of time researching mm-hmm. and which I feel that uh, Born and Divine haven't paid enough research or paid enough attention to themselves. So that, for example, in MJ Grant's recent, as in the past 15 years, book on serialism, uh, serial music and serial theory. It's very clear from Grant's research that what is called avant-garde music or serial music is a type of experimental music. And if you look at the literature that was being published at the time by thinkers such such as Abraham Moll and Pierre Schiffer, they were calling this music experimental music. So that this binarism again of experimental music on the one hand and avant-garde music on the other, which Paul Griffiths and others have used in uh, books that are now arguably out of date is something that should really not be allowed to lie it's as you said it's much more complex and it's not as stark yeah i mean this experimental avant-garde thing we shouldn't we shouldn't hamper on too much about this because it's yeah. it's well kind of covered topic but I'm, I'm so fascinated by i mean one of the other things i often think about this and this is a really obvious point to make but in terms of broader notions of of the avant-garde so what the avant-garde looks like 
in, in fine art and so on. So if you think of someone like, um, so Peter Berger writes a lot about the theory of the avant-garde. He relates the avant-garde to ideas of praxis and, and engage with politics. And when you, when you, when you bring those definitions or, or descriptions of the avant-garde to bear on what's often called experimental versus avant-garde music, the music that looks avant-garde is the experimental stuff. John Cage is making work which relates to those kinds of ideas. So again, it's just this, and it's more than just a terminological kind of confusion. It shows the kind of fundamental rot at the heart of that twin narrative of experimental versus avant-garde. It shows that those two things are are just overlapping and crisscrossing and, and interpenetrating and, and hardly kind of separable at all. And it's not that important in this article to come back to it because it is just this somewhat of a passing reference. But nevertheless, it is one of the kind of structuring binaries of the whole conception of this of this argument, isn't it? Because it relates back to the idea of, of new canons and the way these new canons are defined is is pretty much in response to those kinds of narratives. And they're the concepts on which are based histories of 20th century music often. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you on, on that. On that level, where I think that part of the of the argument and of the article would have been much improved with with the more kind of nuanced sense of histories of, of Western art music and and the kind of field since the the fifties or so. Did you have any other reactions? I feel like I've been uh, far too negative because my reactions weren't all negative to reading the article, but um, I felt I should throw a few things mm. out just to get a bit of debate going. Right, so we, we, I think we've covered quite a lot of that article, so we move on to our, our second piece. Okay, the second piece is uh, by Robert Hasegawa. It's entitled Clashing Harmonic Systems in Haas's Blumenstück and in Vain. Robert Hasegawa is Professor of Music Theory at McGill University, and his research focuses on spectral music, microtonal music, and contemporary music. I'll just read out the abstract for Hasegawa's article. Gerhard Friedrich Haas has been recognised as a major second-generation spectralist composer, but that designation ignores the substantial influence on his music of earlier microtonal composers, especially Ivan Vishnigradsky, a pioneer of microtonal equal temperaments, and Harry Parch, who developed a system of extended just intonation based on the intervals of the overtone series. Haas's recent works, Blumenstück and In Vain, create large-scale form by dramatising the opposition between equal temperament and just intonation. For me, Hasegawa is one of the best writers on spectral music in English or French. I actually met him last year when I attended the Jarguita conference in Montreal and enjoyed his paper as as I've enjoyed reading his articles in the past, Haas's currency is uh, Haas's profile has risen quite a lot. I think it's fair to say in the past decade in the anglophone world, uh, he's been appointed professor of composition at Columbia University. People like Alex, Alex Ross are writing about his music, and not so long ago, Royal Opera House premiered Haas's new opera Morgan und Abend in London. So it was getting quite a lot of coverage in the English press, and so it's topical. And Hasegawa's article is quite ambitious. It's applying a novel music analytical model to Haas's music. Hasegawa introduces the concept of overtone class, which has a resonance with pitch class and set theory. And it's seeking to move on the discourse surrounding spectralist and microtonal music. Now, Haas is very often considered a spectralist composer, but 
Hasegawa shows very convincingly, I think, in this article that Haas actually is much more complex. He's drawing on at least three other traditions of uh, non-12-tone equal-tempered music, specifically the microtonal tradition in France, which is associated with Julien Carillo, Jean-Étienne Marie, Ivan Vishnigradsky, Alain Bancard, Pascal Cuiton, and Philippe Lurou. It's this distinct tradition which is not associated really with spectral music until you get to uh, composers like Philippe Lurou. Spectralist music, obviously, which is associated with Cuiset et Mirail and Hugues Dufour, which is a problematic term in itself. And you could also associate Haas's music with composers like Webern. Uh, again, so I won't go into the nuts and bolts, which are mini and complex, of this article, um, except to say that certainly Hasegawa's model is one that could be applied to different composers and different works composing uh, microtonal music. How did you react to this article, Steve? Well, I... Okay, so the first thing I want to say is that I do not want to use this article as a placeholder, as a prop for, for kind of broader discussions and kind of estimations of the value of this kind of musical analysis. And the reason I say that is because that was what my initial reaction was. Not because I don't read that much music analysis, it's that I don't necessarily read that much music analysis which, which is analytical to this degree. So this really, really crunches some numbers. This is, this is intense. So there was a moment, I think, and I can say for both of us, there was a moment where, or a moment or two in my case, where I, I, I struggled, to be honest. Um, I got lost amongst the kind of thickets of different overtone series and clashing uh, tuning systems and so on. Now, I'm, I love that stuff, um, so I, I don't want to use this as a prop for that. But I do, I do think it will help us, this article will help us think about the, the kind of purpose and the, the kind of achievements of this kind of work in a useful way. My reaction to this article was, in some senses, kind of positive. So I was really interested in the the kind of conceits that he comes up with. So there were certain concepts in there which are really, really interesting. Um, first of all, as you say, I think he convincingly picks apart this idea of Haas as a kind of a spectralist. He really shows the way in which all these different systems of organising pitch come into play in his music. And I think maybe it will be useful to try and maybe summarize these very, very briefly. So, and again, this is, this is, this is um, very, very in brief. So this th- seems to be, to me, to be three kinds of uh, pitch organizational systems in play that at least Hasegawa identifies. In the first instance, we have basically equal-tempered chromaticism based on cycles of tritones and forts and so on. Um, so that's the first thing. The second system is equal-tempered microtonality. So this is divisions of the semitone into 6 and 12 equal equal tones. And then the third system is kind of straightforward, just intonation, overtone chords. And the point Hasegawa makes in looking at Blumenstuck and In Vain and two other pieces in passing is that his conceit or his idea is that Hass's music basically uh, builds drama out of the interplay and contrast between these different tuning systems. And he, he offers a number of really interesting ideas or kind of framings of what Hass does. So he talks about this thing that you mentioned which is the... Um, overtone classes. Uh, overtone classes. So this is a really nice way of of kind of understanding and kind of putting into everyday language that we're familiar with um, some complicated kind of pitch uh, constructs and pitch um, ideas. That's the first interesting thing. He also mentions things like the emancipation of the comma, which is really, really interesting, this idea that 
what you get from equal tempered um, music this beating because of the kind of artificial um, because of the artificial intervals which it uses you get this harmonic beating because it's not these pure just in tone intervals he thinks this is a feature not a bug of, of equal temperament that's really interesting and he also talks about the way in which Haas uses specific techniques such as pivot intervals and what's the other one something transformations basically two forms of essentially common tone modulation and common tone modulation is a quite common 19th century technique where composers would use place two keys alongside each other and they'd use a common tone or a common chord to modulate from one to the other. Yeah, it's also present in jazz and I think Asagwell mentions that at a certain yeah. point the analogy can be drawn between these techniques um, using 12-tone equal tempered yeah. harmonies and microtone Yeah, so the common tone thing is really, really useful and what he does with common tone stuff and the, the, the essentially pitch class which he turns into overtone class is he gives a kind of an everyday straightforward language to think about the kinds of nitty-gritty fine-grained pitch decisions that Haas makes in his music so on that level I found it fairly convincing although and this bridges into my my set of problems that I have with this article okay I think and I'm going to be interested to hear what your reaction to this is since you have written more straight... Well, I don't know if this is fair, but you've written more straightforwardly music analytical stuff than I have. Is that fair to I say? I don't know if that's fair, really. Okay. Um, music theoretical, I would say, rather okay. than music analytical. Okay. To date, anyway. Okay. Um, yeah, I was very interested in, in Liam's reaction because, because of that thing I just said. His work has been looking at music theory and spectral music and so on. I definitely have a music theoretical component to my work, but it, it doesn't tend to lean into that. So my reaction to, to the number crunchy stuff was, was fairly positive. And I think he, despite some, some <laughs> kind of tripping over himself at times in trying to lay all this stuff out, where it's just impossible to follow uh, in certain moments, unless you read it four or five or seven times. Despite all that, I think it's quite successful. But what I did have an issue with was... And as I said, this bridges into my main set of problems with this article, is that I felt like he over-relied on composer statements about how this stuff was working. Yeah, that's that's fair to say. Um, there are some tensions, again, between this and what's considered maybe a guiding principle of music coming from spectralist uh, traditions. So a statement that's often made is the map is not the territory. This, the motivation for this music was to find a way of producing sounds which can't be represented. It's like an ecology of sound, whereby we don't instrumentalize the sounds that are in a musical composition. The different techniques the composer uses go towards producing something that's not systematizable or rep representable. So to conceive an enormously complex model for describing how the sounds are produced is totally worthwhile, but it should go towards I think explaining how the music has the effect it has to the musical sense mm. of the music. There's an interesting moment uh, in the article where Hasegawa contrasts Shelsey on the one hand and Haas on the other. Arguably, Shelsey's music is more compelling and it's much rawer and it's rougher and it's le far, far less theoretical than Hasegawa or than Haas. <laughs> than Haas's music, which is conceived in a very complicated way but can at times be quite lifeless. So I don't know what is what is this stuff. Well, no, because no, okay, this is really interesting because it, it nicely kind of brings up my the issue I had with this was that this is this article is strong on number crunching but much less strong on interpretation. Now we get a sense from this article about how we might formally describe the pitch systems 
in play in this work. So we, we get that, and that's fine as far as that goes. What I don't get from this article is why it matters and the specific ways it plays out at the level of musical sound, the specific, um, if you like, extra musical or at least at least kind of extra pitch kind of consequences and also details of this work. What we get is these really intensely drawn and intricate um, modelings of pitch systems in this music. But then when it comes to the interpretation bit, and you might say, well, music analysis doesn't have to be interpretative, and that's that's fine as far as it goes, but I, I, I don't know that I buy that, and I also don't know that I buy the moments where this article steps out into the light, if you like, and, and starts to interpret, because what he does is, on the first instance, he relies on Hass's statements about these music, which is this is never good, because this is the kind of authorial fallacy, the intentional fallacy. Everyone knows this is a, a limiting and kind of problematic framework to, to build your interpretation on. What he also relies on is statements from um, a couple of critics, which he just takes at face value and doesn't really try and explore. So, for example, right at the end of the article, when he's talking about the closing sections of In Vain, and maybe we can, we can play those now. So obviously in these sections you get this this potentially interesting um, moment where the the clash between equal temperament and just intonation, which has been one of the fulcrum um, ideas that are being explored in this music, it seems to resolve itself onto equal temperament and then this piece plays with ideas of light and darkness. I mean, literally, the light goes up and down whilst In Vain is being played. You get this bright light and you get this equal temperament coming through right at the end of the piece. Now, fairly blunt... Uh, fairly um, straightforward messages being played with there, perhaps. 
But what, what Hasegawa does is he takes Alex Ross at his word, and Alex Ross says, At the climax, all these shimmering fragments are derived from a fundamental sea, meaning that the music accumulates a glorious sheen like a new dawn of tonality. But it all goes awry. Notes bend from their natural paths, the lights come back up, the frantically scurrying figures return, and after several herky-jerky accelerations and decelerations, the music he abruptly switches off. And you finally understand the title. A new kind of beauty seems ready to come into the world, but in the light of the day, it falters and we end up back where we started. And Hasegawa simply accepts that interpretation, doesn't offer any political counterweight to that, doesn't discuss the use of light and dark, doesn't offer his own interpretations, and consequently ends up in a bit of a rut with this stuff. And I just, I don't know where to go from there. Okay, well, I think you're maybe being a little bit unfair. I do agree with where you're coming from in some ways. As I've said, and I'd reiterate, I think Hasegawa's model is really impressive um, as a framework for understanding the basis of some of this music. However, I do agree that it doesn't go far enough, the article that is, in other ways. I'd like more discussion of Haas's rehearsing some slightly, for me, turgid neo-romantic yeah. light and dark and uh, themes in his music and nihilistic music in some ways you could say and how maybe that's linked to the fact that he's using um, compositional techniques developed by other composers um, who might be seen as innovators such as Griset so Haas is using these but repeating them without I don't know injecting them with very much imagination in my view whereas for me and you might think this is an overly romantic statement itself uh, composers such as Griset, who invents essentially a new style of music, flashes across like a comet, and others come along and try and pin it down, and they repeat what appeared as a flash, uh, what appeared as something new. But now it's not new, and it's slightly stale. Yeah, I mean that's a perfectly reasonable reaction to this work. I'm not, I don't fully buy it myself. The 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 music, I mean. Um. So so. All that stuff could have been brought to bear if the interpret. It seems to me if the interpretation had been more at stake. It seems to be not to be at stake, and, and those kinds of issues therefore go by the wayside. So what you're talking about is an ideal type of musical analysis, then. So a type of musical analysis which takes account of these um, calculations, but on the other hand, well, you know what? There's two things I'd say very quickly. Is that one in in a. In, in one sense, we're not being fair to Hasegawa because I often find this with film criticism that the critic will tell the director or criticize the film on the basis of what it's not doing. And that's often not a fair thing because you should really criticize things on the basis of what they're trying to achieve. And clearly this article is not necessarily trying to offer a broad-based interpretation of these, these works, although I think that's where the the rub is because I think it, it is trying to offer some kind of interpretation but on its own terms in terms of offering a, a model of how the pitch works in these in this music I think it works quite well I think it's unfair maybe to a certain extent to, to lob all this stuff on top of it but even if we push all that aside and say okay music analysis doesn't necessarily need to be interpretative it's perfectly fine doing what it's, it does crunching numbers and so on that's one thing and I'm prepared to leave that aside I'm prepared to, to not have to go down that, that path with this stuff but what I would say is, is maybe more pressing or more problematic is that this falls down into really old and well-worn formalist lines this is looking at pitch this doesn't really look at rhythm this doesn't really look I mean it mentions timbre obviously and, and timbre and pitch aren't necessarily separate 
entities, are they? So I guess Tomber is hovering around there. But we don't really get a sense of, of sound and of, of, of rhythm and of shape and of balance and of all those musical ingredients which seem to me to be not isolatable from pitch if you want to have a meaningful account of how a musical work is, is operating. I agree, and it's particularly uh, appropriate for spectral music, again, problematic term, that was trying to move away from pitch-based pitch discourse on music. I think it's ironic, or maybe it's telling, that the discourse around spectral music has fallen into the same um, pattern as the discourse surrounding serial music, which is to talk almost exclusively about pitch complexes and so on, and to have a sort of fetishization of these things, which is kind of away from the spirit of what prompted the music in the first place. What interests me about Yves Dufour's music, for example, is that it's very hard to pin down. You can't really often talk about it in these ways because his system, although of course he has a technique, isn't really homogenizable. It's coming out of Goulet's, which Grisa is too, to some extent. And in some ways, it's yeah, it's more uh, emblematic of the spirit of what spectral music might be about than the more well, what you've called number crunching, <laughs> number fetishizing uh, approaches that can be found in Hass. Yeah, I mean, and this this number crunchy stuff, it's it's interesting, isn't it? That that as you say, spectral music, uh, the discourse around this music has ended up there because there's various historical and just practical reasons why that's the case because it's much easier to talk about not the not that what Hasegawa did was easy not by any means but it's it, it is easier in one sense to talk about the pitch constituents of a of an overtone chord as they transform into an equal tempered chord or something else than it is to talk about um, sound and interpret that sound. Well, this is the thing that you find uh, sometimes in some of the discourse on spectral music in French and English, the model of the overtone series as this kind of static uh, series of frequencies is out of date that's the helmholtz model the actual proper model is a dynamic one it's the distribution of the frequencies simultaneously at different levels uh, the transient envelope of a sound that is the accurate description of how we timbrely um, perceive sound psychoacoustically and so on so that a discourse is based on a static mm. range of frequencies in a harmonic series is inaccurate that's interesting but couldn't you then uh, transplant that to music in general and any kind of set of any sonority so looking at sonority as a static thing is is rarely by that by absolutely, that logic, yeah. absolutely so this is one of the ways in which Grisard's music so it, uh, brings up issues which would be really fascinating to tackle and I'm not sure have been tackled that mm. much yet because they've got broader applicability as you've said to other types of music mm, that's interesting I mean he does the, he does in this article at one point talk about the difference between Haas's use of the overtone series and, and other composers who might be seen as spectral um, and he says that Haas uses it as a kind of a he doesn't say the word static, does he? But he says a kind of a perceptual apparatus, which is slightly more fixed than it would be in your eyes. So I guess that speaks to what you're mm-hmm. you're kind of saying. We're going to conclude with research in the round, where we discuss recent journal publications in musicology journals and new books that have come out in the past few months. In this episode, we're going to keep it brief, but we will develop it a bit further in future episodes. So what stood out for me recently? Um, In the latest issue of Tempo, there's been a forum on John Croft's article in the previous issue, Composition is Not Research, and there have been replies to John Croft's article by Ian Pace, 
by Luke Weiss, and there's been quite a lot of debate on Facebook so, uh, around these articles as well, which are very relevant for composers and performers working in higher education in music departments at the moment with regard to the research excellence framework and compositional and music performance activity being properly valued at the same level as the research output of musicologists. So it's definitely worth checking out um, for people who may not be so familiar with it. And uh, Stephen, did you have something that stood out in particular? Yeah, actually, just on that, on that note, um, I would say that if you don't have access to tempo, I think Ian Pace has certainly produced his his pieces at his blog, Desiring Progress, and that's accessible to everyone. So you could have a look there. And I would say also that that whole debate it really speaks to some of the things that Born and Divine look at because it's about the changing the changing field of music and the ways in which these things are monetized and valued in culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really interesting. The thing I just wanted to mention in brief, and I've not read it yet, but um, I'm looking forward to reading it, is a new article in that was published in fall of 2015 in the Journal of the American Musicological Society. This is by Dominic McHugh, and the article is Who Knows Who Did What? Broadway Composers as Musical Collaborators. So this article is obviously looking at the issue of authorship and kind of ownership of Broadway musical works. This is a really interesting issue for anyone who knows anything about that repertoire and that kind of genre because the issue of authorship, which is always a very vexed and kind of layered and complicated issue in the case of Broadway is especially so because you have these essentially collaborations between orchestrators, composers, performers, directors, and so on. So this concept of a kind of a field of creators is is really, really present in, in the Broadway musical. So this article, I think, picks apart and gets to the bottom of some of those ideas. So I'm looking forward to reading that one. We're also open to having other contributors uh, to the podcast. So do get in touch if you're interested in getting involved. You can find us um, on our WordPress site, talkingmusicology.wordpress.com. Our email address, which is talkingmusicology at gmail.com. And each of us are on Twitter. I'm Liam Cagney, and you're... I think at the moment I'm Stephen T. Graham. And we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for tuning in, and see you next time. See you next time.